Welcome to the podcast of the Europe's Futures Project here at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. And I'm delighted and honored to have a guest today, Wolfgang Merkel, who is with the Institute for a few months now. Wolfgang is an old friend of the Institute. He is a professor at the Humboldt University in Berlin and is the Emeritus Director of the Democracy and Democratization Research Program at the Social Science Research Center in Berlin. Wolfgang, welcome. It's great to have you with us. It's great to be here, Ivan. Thank you. You have recently written a text on the effects and implications of the pandemic, of the COVID-19 crisis, on democracy, on democratic institutions, on democratic behavior in general. I might add, uh, by way of introduction, that, of course, you are the author of numerous books and that you have devoted your research and professorial life to democracy and research on democracy. One of your latest books, which I see translated in English, is 2018, Democracy and Crises, Challenges in Turbulent Times. So even before the pandemic, you were looking at the effect of crises on democracy and democratic institutions. This latest article that I believe you wrote several months ago in May, published in May, is one that looks in particularly at Germany as a case study of an important European democracy, one of the strongest members of the European Union. And you begin by saying that we're neither in a Weimar nor a Bonn moment. Could I ask you to give a brief introduction, overview of what you tackle in this article? I was writing this article against the background whether democracies, established democracies, especially in the West, are indeed in a crisis, as many theoreticians have pointed out during the last uh, 10 years. And looking to Germany, I discovered a particular paradox. On the one side, the democracy in Germany is better than ever. It's better than in the Bonn Republic and certainly better than in Weimar. And the crisis we are supposedly in at these times has nothing to do with 1929. But the paradox is... The quality of democracy is very high in Germany, even on uh, in international standards. On the other side, democracy have become much more fragile. It, have, it has become a more fragile because citizens do not believe anymore as much as they did in the past into the core institutions of the democratic system. Uh, you have to immediately name the parliaments, but political parties as well. So I would sharpen my hypothesis. Uh, the democracy in Germany is not in crisis, but is certainly not uh, clear whether it will keep his standards, will keep uh, the quality it has finally reached. Can I push you to tell us what is the source of this mistrust of citizens in the democratic institutions? One could argue as a uh, political theorist, uh, mistrust and distrust uh, 
is very much important in a democracy. Citizens, good citizens, have to be critical citizens. This has been pointed out by Pippa Norris and others, and I would follow this argument. And there are two schools at looking at it. The one are saying simply, uh, now, uh, finally, citizens have become more critical. And therefore, we have lower figures of trust into government, into parliament, and even into the judiciary. Others are talking about a crisis of representation meaning there are increasing strata, increasing shares of the population which do not feel themselves represented in government and especially in governmental policy. And the so-called globalization certainly has exacerbated this trend. So if you ask me, uh, are you, uh, do I follow the more comfortable thesis, now finally we are all more critical citizens, or I am on the side of the crisis of representation, I tend to be in the middle of both. This is an extremely comfortable position, but there is a simultaneity. On the one side that we became more critical, but on the other side, no doubt that uh, political parties are no longer as strong and as representative as they have been in the second half of the 20th century. If I, if I may add, I think that the fact that we aren't in a kind of unilinear upward post-World War II progression in terms of social standards and quality of living, that we've sort of peaked at some point and that we are now in a circular motion. And certainly I would, I would tend to agree with you that it's much more complex than siding with one of the two interpretations. But let me go back to your article and to the ideas that you expand there and, and put forward. And straight to the core of it, um, the state of exception that we are living because of a pandemic, is that an excuse for sidelining a democratic institution such as the parliament? But if you are a Schmidtian and uh, so to say a friend and follower of the highly disputed constitutionalist Carl Schmidt, you would immediately say crises are the hours of the executive. And this means in crisis, governments have to decide very fast. And we are now living uh, through a series of deep crises which are different from the classical economic crisis. It started in Europe, especially with 2015, with a so-called migration crisis. And uh, it find his continuation in the pandemic crisis in 2020, the COVID-19 crisis. And we should not forget about the crisis of global warming. And governments, no matter where, do not have very good and democratic solution to each of these problems. These crises are deeply complex, interconnected, and they leave negative legacies to the government. And one you... Uh, uh, 
you put in your question that the executive tends to sideline uh, parliaments. So they are not only executing the uh, decisions done by the parliament, they are to some extent norm-setting institutions and political actors. They create their own laws. And this is a very problematic uh, development we have seen, especially uh, during uh, the last month through the pandemic crisis. Can one say that this is a willful relinquishing of parliamentary authority in the face of urgency? This is an extremely interesting uh, question because, first, the parliament is not a classical actor. The parliament is constituted by different pluralist parties. And uh, the right, represented mainly in these times by the right-wing populists, is quite different from the center or from uh, leftist uh, parties. So this is one important thing one has to note. Uh, but what I observed, not only in Germany, but across the countries, Uh, the opposition stopped to be op an opposition. And this is very symptomatically what you could hear by uh, the uh, chair, by the president of the Greens, which is now the strongest party of the opposition in Germany. And his name is Robert Habeck. And he said in front of TV cameras, it is not the hour of the opposition. It is the hour of responsibility. As a political scientist and somebody who does research in democracy, I would immediately respond, respond the responsibility of the opposition is to be opposition. And especially in times of deep crisis, because the government has attracted, has taken so much power, it needs control. This is a difference between democracies and authoritarian regimes. Opposition is not only for the good times, it's for turbulent times uh, even more. Is there something visceral when a community, a society confronts great adversity to stick together. Yeah, but this is something uh, what uh, we have seen uh, through these crises I already mentioned and what we have seen th through the last two decades. Most of the Western democratic uh, societies are deeply divided. They are polarized. They don't trust each other. And if uh, you want to have it uh, very simple, you could say there is now a new cleavage visible uh, uh, across uh, the democracies. And we called uh, this new cleavage, which is to some extent cross-cutting the traditional ref left-right cleavage. It's between cosmopolitans on the one side and communitarians on the other side. So the cosmopolitans are the winner of globalization, the well-educated people. They opt for 
an open society. Uh, they are arguing for human rights, not only in the nation states, but beyond uh, nation state borders. So to say, it's somebody like you and me. So uh, people uh, who are living under better condition, let's say, uh, than one, the lowest uh, one third of our society. And the other one, the communitarians, which I would say communitarians slash nationalists or chauvinists, uh, they are very often coming from the lower half of the society. They didn't have the privilege of this these good good educations, for example. So uh, they need a strong nation state to protect themselves in economic matters, in social matters, and even in cultural uh, matters, because they don't have such a strong voice as the upper half of the society. Therefore, they reacted very defensively against migration, because the migrants normally are the competitors of them on the labor market, on the housing market, and in education. And social benefits, of course. And social benefits. And this is not the cause for the upper uh, 50% or 30% of our society. So you have these two camps. And what divides or distinguish this new cleavage from the traditional left-right one is it became moralized. It's not about redistribution so much. It's about right and wrong, true and false. So it's very much about morale. And if you are standing on the wrong side of the cleavage, then you might be amoral. And then you are not an opponent anymore. You are a political enemy. And here we are back at Carl Schmidt, that a political enemy is something which uh, divides deeply uh, democratic societies. You mentioned the Green Party, and I think we've mentioned in, in your response now, you've addressed some of these questions, but I'm curious to know how you explain the meltdown of mainstream parties. Of course, it hasn't happened everywhere in the UK. We still have Conservative and Labour. In Italy, we have had a meltdown in France, partial meltdown with the appearance of, of Macron. The, the, the weakening uh, of the Social Democrats in Germany, does that have to do with the previous things that we mentioned about the mistrust, about uh, globalization? W what is it that's driving this meltdown, however slow or fast it's happening? There are different uh, causes. And one uh, thing I would immediately note is there is a long-term trend of declining catch-all parties. Center-right catch-all parties, classical Christian democratic parties, and center-left uh, parties, classical social democratic parties. And one main reason for that is the individualization of society, meaning uh, the catch-all parties uh, who want to catch Uh, voters from the working class, from the lower third of societies up 
to emerging new middle strata and even sometimes up to uh, the upper class, uh, they find no longer these uh, aggregated uh, uh, segments of the society which they can address their rather vague messages. Uh, individualized societies and the members of these societies are looking for more specific, so to say, political products. As they have it in consumer markets, uh, they are looking at the political market with similar eyes, meaning if you are culturally progressive these days and you don't want to redistribute because you are a lawyer, a doctor, a professor or uh, some kind of these uh, professions, then you vote for the Greens. If you want to redistribute, but you are a traditionalist believing in blue-collar workers, you don't vote for the Greens. You are only progressive in redistributional terms, and then you vote for leftist or left socialist parties. If you are rightist, uh, then you don't vote uh, anymore at the margins of the Christian democratic parties. Now you have the right-wing populists. So on the one side, individualized societies and uh, political camps, which are so deeply divided that parties cannot address to some extent both camps. And this is what I meant before with, with moralizing uh, politics and uh, with uh, opponents becoming uh, enemies. Therefore, these parties are uh, to some extent a relict of the second half of the 20th century. And you mentioned at the beginning uh, the United Kingdom, this is only, you have no longer a classical two-party system as in the past, because you have the Scottish National Party, the Liberals, and so forth. But it is the first past supposed electoral system which artificially keeps alive these big parties. If they would have a proportional representational system, as for example in the Netherlands or in Germany, they would uh, these big parties would have the same fate of decline. Absolutely. I think it's very important that you mention the importance of electoral systems for the kind of uh, landscape that we get in, in different countries. You mentioned rightly in your article the demos, and you talk about its compliance in a situation like this. How does that factor in to what we've been saying until now? This is what frightens me to some extent. I don't uh, see everywhere crises, and I was always very cautious uh, to say democracy singular is in crisis. We all I, know I agree with you. <laughs> uh, Sweden and Denmark is not Poland and Hungary. There are big differences. They're even not the United States. So uh, there is a difference. Why is the demos compliant? Uh, in uh, situations of high uncertainty, let's take the uh, COVID-19 crisis again where the people are completely uncertain what will happen during the next month or during the next uh, years to come. 
they tend to opt for security against liberties. And so they, uh, even the most, uh, let's call them authoritarian politicians in democracies, they get a premium uh, in the electoral arena because they represent a strong leader. And the people believe in these times of low information and high uncertainty in political leaders. This happened now even in Germany. Uh, the prime minister of Bavaria always tried to be the toughest on uh, on limits and of uh, the freezing of fundamental individual uh, rights. And he get the best surveys ever. He became now the probably the most uh, promising candidate for the next chancellery. So people opt for security and not for uh, the persistence and vitality of liberal rights and of uh, freedom rights. And this is not only something one could observe during the last months in uh, Germany. You find it in Austria, you find it uh, in France even more, or in Spain, Italy, and most of the countries. So how would you explain then the popularity of your surname-sake chancellor, Angela Merkel. She's not an authoritarian. No, not at all. Uh, she has a characteristic, I don't vote for her, I confess openly here. Uh, and you're not related to her. <laughs> uh, and I'm uh, not related, not politically and not uh, through family uh, And I have been always critical, but one has to say, even as a critic, she is a modest politician and she is able to attract trust in her because she is modest. She uh, does not uh, play the game of... Uh, being an enemy of the other parties. Uh, so her uh, quiet style of governing is a part of her success. And one has to say, uh, beyond all critiques I have about uh, the political action during the pandemic, the COVID-19 crisis, uh, Angela Merkel and her government uh, were rather successful, at least in keeping down the death toll Germany paid during the crisis. And this helped her too. How does civil society fare in a situation like this? It's quite interesting. Civil society is to some extent a matter of the middle classes, especially in Western uh, Europe and to some extent now in Eastern Europe as well. So these are the better educated people. And if you go to the political part of civil society, uh, the NGOs, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and so forth, what you find there is young people, highly educated, and they de devote some years of uh, 
of their young life to these political matters. This is one part. But a civil society, it's not only the true, the beautiful and nice thing in political life. There are dark sides of uh, civil society as well, as Michael Mann and others have pointed out. And this means part of these uh, of this uh, civil society are only are also racists. Mobilizing against migrants. There is a famous one in Germany, European patriots against uh, immigration, PEGIDA. These are autonomous, autonomously uh, organized uh, groups of citizens. Uh, they uh, do not belong to a political party. They are completely independent from the state. They are opposing the state or take uh, the biggest uh, organization of society in the United States, the National Rifle Organization. It's not what we would immediately uh, link to civil society. But if you have a neutral uh, definition what a civil society means, you have uh, to have a look at these dark sides as well. And what we have seen or what we do see now, for example, here in Austria or in Germany, are people... Uh, against the COVID-19 crisis policies of their government. They call them corona demonstration. And this is a bizarre mix of people coming uh, from anti-vaccinationists uh, uh, or however you want to call them, There are against each vaccination. You have esoteric people. You have people from the extreme left, but especially now more and more people from the extreme right. Yeah, the QAnons and queer thinkers. Yeah, and uh, the queer thinker and the QAnon, or uh, you have conspirational theorists. Very bizarre mix. Uh, but uh, the established political actors, the political parties make a mistake if they call them only uh, as the leader of the Social Democratic Party uh, does and did, uh, COVIDiots. And uh, so here you see again uh, this di dividing line between these cosmopolitans, post-materialists and the other groups. Uh, they don't speak to each other. They speak over each other. And uh, if we continue with this policies, we push all of them to the right wing. And this is a risk if you don't talk to them, but you just... Uh, try uh, to exclude them from political demonstration and the force. Last sentence to that. Very often the executive, uh, the police and the municipal departments uh, forbid these demonstrations and they go regularly uh, to the courts and the courts uh, allow these demonstrations. And this is a uh, fight going on between the constitutional powers. Yeah, free speech argument. I, I cannot resist mentioning 
going back to the uh, initial part of your response, when I came to teach at the University of Sussex in, in Britain 25 years ago, uh, a person told me about young people's engagements. That he said very simply, you know, people, uh, young people do not choose between Labour and Conservative. They're choosing between Amnesty and Greenpeace, to put it, to simplify it. And it's exactly replicating what you said. There's a whole issue about the credibility of political engagement in what we would call traditional political parties or, or even new ones. But I think, as you mentioned, that is changing given the, given the individualistic character that we have. Um, we're slowly coming towards the end. We have another five minutes, a little more maybe. I'd like to ask you this question about representative democracy, and you've mentioned it uh, in your earlier response. And I mentioned uh, that uh, about your, your earlier books, and you have a book about the legitimacy of direct democracy. How, how do you see more broadly the issue of today's health of re representative democracy and these attempts that we've seen with direct democracy, where it's the pir pri pirate party or the uh, Cinque Stelle, the Five Star Movement in Italy. You're something who's looked into this. Yeah, I would uh, uh, like to repeat it at the beginning. Uh, I don't believe uh, all Western democracies are in a deep crisis, but there is certainly a crisis of representation. And people want, or at least uh, a large and increasing part of the people want to have a bigger say in political matters. They do not only want to vote each uh, fourth year for political parties and for the government. They want directly be engaged in decision-making, and here it is about referenda uh, where uh, struggle is going on. My general opinion is these direct uh, democratic means we see f from referenda on the one side, uh, mini-publics deliberating on the other side, uh, we... Uh, We could argue they should be part of the representative democracy. They can compensate for certain weaknesses of representation. So uh, the core will remain the representative institution, but there are lacks of uh, representation And there is no theoretical sound argument which could be brought against these uh, direct referenda and especially deliberative uh, arenas for participation. However, if we look deeper, who participates in these uh, direct instruments and direct participation in our democracies against our the better educated people. And a Swiss colleague uh, has looked at the referenda in Switzerland, which is certainly the country worldwide with the widest uh, system of referenda. And uh, he uh, came up with the result, the lower third does not really go to these uh, 
policy-oriented referenda. And his expression was, this is the self-exclusion of the incompetent. Meaning uh, people do not know uh, what uh, this complex decision is all about. And if they don't know it, they uh, do not go to the referenda. And again, the more of these nice-looking, direct democratic instruments we have, the more we strengthen the participation of the already privileged strata in our society. So the socioeconomic and in, uh, educational inequality translates here completely into a selective form of participation, inequality of political participation. To sum it up, uh, I am in favor, but we have to look in favor of these uh, direct elements, but we have to look how we can overcome this class divide, what we find uh, in these uh, direct forms of participation. Sometimes we forget it because we think this is finally uh, the way out of the representational crisis. It is not that simple. Those are extremely important insights. And of course, many people forget that you mentioned rightly Switzerland, but Uh, in these elections in the U.S., uh, there are so many referenda that go on in all of the states on a whole variety of issues like they do in Switzerland. So they do have a, a bit of Switzerland in, in the U.S. Uh, as well. Uh, Wolfgang, final question. Will the pandemic change our democracies? It's not that easy. And uh, some empirical-oriented social scientists Uh, do not want to look uh, into the future. Since I am considering myself not only an empirical researcher in democracy, but also contributing somehow to the conceptualization uh, and sometimes even theory of democracy, I dare to do it. And I would say, yes, uh, I'm afraid they will change our uh, democracies. And I was talking about the negative legacies they leave in our democracies. If you are living in a pandemic for one year and you fully accept it, that parliament doesn't play an important role, you fully accept the the power the executive has attracted uh, for itself, then you might get used to this style of governance. And then the question comes, if we accepted uh, this executive-driven style of governance for the corona crisis, why not for the crisis of global warming? One could even argue this is a much bigger problem for the whole uh, human mankind. And this is what activists are already arguing. They become impatient because uh, the decisions up to now uh, looks 
highly inappropriate for solving this global uh, problem. And you have uh, among activists even Fridays for Future uh, or Extinction Rebellion who are openly arguing we should not have all these veto players against uh, rational politics. And rational politics mean we just have to follow science. And if we follow science, we have the right decision. But this is not very democratic. And I see this growing impatience. And we will have this discussion even deeper uh, uh, with the next years to come uh, if it comes to the climate crisis. There will be a lot of soul searching in various quarters of our society, states, and among our colleagues Wolfgang, thank you very much. That was a fascinating discussion. I'm so glad that you were able to do this. It was my pleasure to be here and to talk to you, Ivan. That was Ivan Vejvoda in conversation with Wolfgang Merkel. In the next Vienna Coffeehouse conversation, Ivan will be talking to Julia de Klerk Sachse, EU diplomat and former senior advisor in the policy planning staff of the European External Action Service. She is currently a non-resident fellow at the Europe's Futures Program at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. You can find more information on the Institute on our website at iwm.at and more information on the Europe's Futures Program at europesfutures.eu. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review and share this podcast. We appreciate you tuning in.